0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Uh, we have got a bonus podcast. We're not doing one wrap up this month, we are doing two. So before we get to this first wrap up with Trip Fuller. Let me tell you about our sponsor for this month, the Missions Resource Network, an organization that's helping disciples make disciples worldwide. And their four main thrusts are mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring. Now, they focus on missionary preparation, missionary care, equipping churches for mission through coaching, labs, vision, and strategy processes, and more, and connecting mission works around the globe. The recent focus has been on following God's lead to cast vision and develop collaborative strategy for the exciting opportunities to care for and share the gospel with refugees who have settled around the Mediterranean rim. Listen to the second part of the wrap-up that comes out tomorrow, and you will hear even more about MRN. So if you want to go check out their website, it's mrnet.org. Without further ado, here's me and Trip Fuller doing the thing well friends this is a real podcast uh for me um because you know what it is we need not just a real podcast, we need a real intervention because there are some things that happened in california the uh few weeks ago and i'm really just concerned for the eternal salvation of trip fuller and so i appreciate y'all joining me for this intervention uh, I don't want to say, let's get ready for some awesome. I say, let's get ready for some salvation.
1: Ooh. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Well, I don't know. I mean,
0: have you ever had such good root beer as was had at uh, theology root beer camp? It was, it was very good root beer. You know, uh, uh, a lot of, I don't, I don't even drink root beer. I can't go with this, but, uh, yeah, it was great. I had really good water when I was there. A lot of good you, water.
1: You want to know, you want to know a secret, Luke? What's that? Uh, this summer. And, uh, in August, Peter Rollins and I uh-huh. are going to, uh, um, be traveling around, uh, fly country doing, uh, some, uh, root beer camps.
0: Really? That's, oh yeah. That's special. Mm-hmm. Doing more of them. Wow. Giving the people what they want. They want that. You want to know something else that's neat? Um, I- let me guess okay.
1: that you found a way to purchase your hair product in bulk.
0: No, that would oh. be helpful too. That would be very helpful, and I would share something with you. Uh, you've got good hair too. I I emailed your friend Joe last night. I at had at a I had a joke that I wanted to punch up, and so I sent it to um, a friend of mine that I made at uh, theology beer camp. Root beer camp. Root beer <clears throat> root beer camp. That's implied. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I the some... silent root. Yeah, it's very silent. So that that, will... that happened last night.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the uh, clearly. If you're listening to Newsworthy with Norsworthy and you want to continue uh, witnessing to me and, and Pete this summer, then you should uh, come hang out with us in landlocked uh, states. And in March, we'll announce all the details and junk. But, um. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll get signs. Uh, people can protest. We'll give you march-like chants that you can use for the marches around the building. Kind of like Jericho. You hope that after the seventh one, it all falls down. And everyone inside perishes. Um, so that would be great. We'll give you more information about how you can be a light to uh, a dark, dark world, the Sodom and Gomorrah of theology beer camps, otherwise known as... Uh, Rollins and trip event this summer. Look at you. I like it. This is what I like about you. You can turn an intervention into a, an advertisement for what you're doing.
1: How do you? Well, I, I really, really, I just wanted you to know, cause it, you could drive and, uh, and visit. And, you know, I didn't call you and say, don't you at your church want to host it? <laughs> I, I, mean, I didn't want to appear precious, but, uh, um, yeah, if, if you want to come. No, I, you know, look I can't
0: this. host it? what? But look, you all—you don't have revivals at your church? It's like a revival. No, we do revivals with Christians. That's what we do at our church. Oh,
1: well, the uh, the if if people want to find out, then uh, you can do something really sneaky. You can text Beer Me Jesus four four two two two. Look at that! You said would trip be ready to say anything? That's what I'm talking. No spaces, just bear Me Jesus four four two two two. And then uh, the day the secrets are released, you'll find out. Look at that.
0: You're a ma- a marketing monster. That's what you are. You're a, you're a gremlin for aggrandizement. If that, you hadn't said anything, I wouldn't have even thought about it. No, I didn't say, hey, are you doing any of these this summer? The only thing I said that's tangentially related is the fact that I saw you a few weeks ago at the first event.
1: So, yeah, but, uh, but you didn't say what it was.
0: Well, and, I didn't uh, need to. Ah. Okay. We, we okay. Well,
1: this is what would you, what do you want to talk about?
0: You said, I need to talk to you and, um, okay. on my, on my whiteboard right behind us, which you can't see, uh, it's a great whiteboard. It's huge. Um, Is it as cool as my whiteboard from, uh, uh, root beer camp. Yes. It's about, don't even talk about that. There are four things that I want to discuss with you. So this all stems from the, uh, I was accosted, It was a sneak attack. There was a clandestine attack on my salvation at Theology Beer Camp. You threw me in a room with a viper. And sure, John Cobb was nice, gentle, kind, loving man. But underneath that, he was a wolf. He was wearing sheep's clothing. And so we need to talk about divinity, resurrection, gender pronouns, and then maybe just like some process versus process theology versus open theism. Okay. That's where I want to get to today. We have four points and maybe a poem at the end. Ooh, poems. I like poems. Yeah. So your man, JC, very nice guy. Very wonderful. I didn't know a whole lot about his work. You said just, Hey, don't know anything about him. This will be like a, an introduction to process and you be the perfect person because you don't know anything about it. And so I stumble in the room. We have a nice jovial conversation. I say, yeah, I don't really like the gospel of John. Cause Jesus is kind of like freshman philosophy major ish in that one. And I like the other ones better and he's like yeah i don't like it either but he really doesn't even like like it at all like it's out like i'm joking like hey i prefer the subnautics and he's like it doesn't even make it into my canon and then we start talking about the divinity of jesus he's like yeah i don't know about that uh and i'm like you know these are things that maybe maybe i should have known beforehand maybe well you know i think he said i doubt we
1: mean the same thing by it or something like that (laughs) And and so yes, uh, but he did actually write a very large christology that is a logos christology. So mm-hmm. um, it, you know it it it's not like he doesn't have it. It's just when you read the logos, which is the word in the Gospel of John, in yes. kind of more uh, platonic ways, it means something different than when you read it in where becoming in relationship and openness is primary and not kind of static, unchanging perfection. Um, but, uh,
0: you know, okay. Okay. Let's just, let's start. And start and you learned a lot of words. You went to seminary and grad school for a lot of years. You accumulated a great deal of debt with student loans so that you could say those words. Now I want to help understand exactly what sort of heresy you're saying. When Okay. The word became flesh and dwelt among you. That, that's John 1. That's in the Bible, my Bible, most people's Bible, uh, not y'all's. But when it says the word became flesh, help me understand another way to understand that besides that, that God literally became a person named Jesus. Okay. So, um, all right. So statement one, all each
1: gospel has its own theological affirmations that are being affirmed when the mm-hmm. church canonized a plurality and diversity of accounts of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. Okay. So you, you can think of different examples in each one, but like Mark in the gospel at, on the cross, why'd you forsake me? Mm-hmm. Sweating blood in the garden, the gospel of John, he's clearly in control the whole time. And when they roll in to arrest him, they're like, where's Jesus? And as a, good, as, a, as a good Jew that also has a clear uh, understanding of his identity, goes, I am. And boom, the junks fall down. Yeah. Uh, so like each gospel is making a theological confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's explained and understood differently. But the church said canon will include a diversity of these affirmations, not a singularity. Uh, and, um, and And so when we go to think about John – I think what Cobb was responding to is to say, yeah, some people definitely um, resonate more with one of the other gospels way of understanding and narrating your confession of faith than this one. But like as a minister, you hear tons of people's narratives and stories about why they come to faith, what they understand it, and you can affirm it and recognize it as such without going,
0: yeah, perfect. I, I, I I would say it just like that. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that John's gospel, which seems to have the most explicit claims of divinity compared to the other, other the synoptics, uh, you, like, like you just mentioned, the I am statement that Jesus referenced in the garden, there's seven of them, uh, clearly in a Jewish setting to say that I am uh, would tie you to Yahweh, like, right, I am who I am becomes I am Jesus the divinity claims in John's gospel seem like they are more substantial than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is that why John's gospel is devalued in uh, maybe, well, I don't want to say Cobb's worldview, but some who share that same sort of uh, philosophical convictions?
1: Well, I I would say this. It's devalued if, when you read it, you think you're reading an accurate depiction of Jesus's own uh, historical self-consciousness. Like, if you're trying to decide what Je- if you're telling it as if Jesus thought and said these things that then it is devalued. If you're trying to understand what the church came to recognize and confess about the historical person, Jesus as the ongoing living body of Christ after Easter, the church is the body of Christ and such, then you can affirm it for what it's communicating. But the, the, the thing I would say about John is that, the word becoming flesh is like a conclusion of a very cosmic story, like the Gospel of Mark begins with a baptism. Luke and Matthew begin with different virgin conceptions yeah. um, that uh, that that we ruin every year by putting them in one uh, Christmas pageant and that's, true. that's they, true no, even Richard Rohr says this, so you know I know you 're allowed to say this on Newsworthy with norsworthy um, <laughs> yes. but, but if you take the Gospel of John. In its cosmic perspective, then what is communicating is that the word, the kind of generative reason for the entire cosmic story, which brings all goodness, truth, and light into being, and things took up flesh in Christ, is, uh, is then the context for even understanding um, what the affirmation of the word in flesh means is a cosmic one because God's the word's already been attached to all of the creative generative process in the world. And so, you know, if you're reading it today and you are uh, scientifically informed and such, then I don't find that to be like an odd thing. Yeah. You are still making like a Christological statement to say that in the person of Jesus, in a unique and particular way, uh, this uh, embodiment embodied the word in it's in a, in a fullness that is explicit but it's not a way of saying the entirety of creation is unrelated to the logos. And then it like intervenes in the world right
0: here as okay. if it there before. So what you're saying though, is that you're trying to have a higher view of all creation that God is in all things, but in the particularity of Jesus of Nazareth, it's not substantially more divine than the rest of all creation. Would that well, be? I, well, well, Cobb actually says that, uh, that, so put it this way.
1: So, one way of understanding God's presence to creation is to say that in each moment, God comes to the world, offering the world the greatest possibility of beauty, truth, and goodness that's available. Um, and fidelity from the world side, from each person, is to uh, respond faithfully to it. And when we respond faithfully uh, to God, uh, the possibilities God gives, then the will of God um, comes on earth as it is in heaven in a more robust, uh, way. Mm -hmm. And so you could say that it is through the full fidelity of Jesus, his faithful response to the one he called Abba, that you come to see in flesh, uh, the will and love and nature of God. Uh, but see, then it's not like, oh, it had to You had to get concept, conceived in a way that avoids humanity, or oh, it has to get into the human but not really be human it 's his full humanity and his full response faithfully to God that means that this person is the image of the invisible god mm-hmm. um, that he 's the firstborn of all creation because god 's intention for creation is uh, full participation in the divine life, and uh, so when you switch like oh divine intervention or Jesus somehow escapes original sin and this sinlessness issue. And instead say, what if it's a fidelity issue? That through the full faithfulness of Jesus of
0: Nazareth, um, God becomes flesh in a unique and particular way. So would that mean that the divinity of Jesus, as you understand it, not as, you know, real Christians understand it, but as you understand it, the divinity of Jesus comes through his faithfulness, which means like originally he's less divine. And as he becomes more faithful than his, divinity is this like a superpower that's like strengthened the more faithful he is like every time he doesn't like stub his toe and like say a curse word like that means oh he's he's like seven points divine and then if he doesn't look lustfully at a woman it goes like nine points divine is that what you're saying um well i mean minus the video game metaphors well but i would say that
1: like the experience of most christians is that by cultivating habits of virtue or contemplation or prayer or being in community that practices things, m- things become possible for you that weren't there before.
0: But I, uh, like, I agree in that we live more into the image of God inside of us by the faithfulness that we express and that we participate in. Like the more, yeah, I see like the image of God becomes more prevalent in my life the more I'm faithful to God's will for my life. I, I get that. But in terms, and I think like the second half of where you're going, with your uh, understanding of like, you know, God is in all things. Like I, I can, I feel like I, it's easy for me to jump to the second half, but that first part and the particularities about Jesus of Nazareth being more than just a, a normal, faithful uh, follower of the creator of the universe. i I'm trying to understand like, a, like, why do you make that move? Like, I'm assuming you, did you grow up conservative and like, this is kind of a progression where you've gotten to um, um, so, so what I'm asking is, like, did you ever have a more traditional view of the divinity of Jesus? And if so, why did it change? Like, what? Well, okay, so
1: I, in one part, I would say that I'm not sure what I'm saying is not what three-fourths of the people in the New Testament thought. Like, um, But you're definitely sure it's not what John thought, right? I, I don't have a lot of uncomfortability with John. I have uncomfortability when people read the gospel of John as if the historical Jesus walked around saying, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, because that same person is hardly going to say, no one calls, don't call me good, only the Father's good. Uh, so, and the problem is when you don't see Gospels as theological narratives. And I think the reason people uh, want them to be history is not because that's what the Gospels always were, it's that that even conservative Christians are so enlightenment friendly that the only truth is like literal truth. And the only thing that's real is historically real. And the only reality is some objective reality. And the gospels are written by people who've already called Jesus the Christ in a community that they're baptized into, meet at the table. And so it's odd to me to, uh, to, to think that the appropriate way of describing the presence of God in Christ, what being the mediation of God to us in Christ is in like, it sounds way too much like geometry and not like a, a, a love poem. And I, and I yeah. mean that in the gospels, I think are theological narratives that the church uh, composes over time while it wrestles with the story of Jesus, but also the reality of God's presence in the church. Mm-hmm. And so you can, in a narrative, communicate something that you know to be true because of the presence of the risen Christ in the community without its truth being dependent on Jesus literally saying, I am this, I am that. With the beginning of Romans, when Paul is like, Jesus is descended from David and then through the spirit is raised into the, into divine life or God and stuff. Like, I think that's kind of how the early churches experienced it, that, because of the continued presence of Christ through the spirit in the community you then look back on the story and encounter of Jesus and it becomes more significant but like that's what happens every wedding like when you're the groomsman and you're giving a toast you all of a sudden put a level of meaning that was present but not recognized in the time your best friend came back from the first date with the person he married and mm-hmm. you realize you had seven stories that you could have told there. It's just this is the person that went that junk went down in. So it, it, it receives this meaning uh, that it didn't have before as actual. It, beca- it was just a possibility. And I think the, like, my frustration or what I resist is thinking that in the early church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were secretly thinking what Nicaea thought. Then I think we actually do acts of violence to each gospel writer and to Paul to turn them into creedal Trinitarians. But that doesn't mean that you're like anti Trinitarian or something. It just means the Trinity was a result of the church's ongoing self reflection mm-hmm. and life in God. But there's no need to project on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, what it took Athanasius and the Cappadocians to figure out.
0: So. Okay. So, okay. The councils come a couple hundred years later. They say, this is what we understand uh, God to be using scripture, using their experience. And you're saying it's not fair for us to go. They got it right. Therefore we all have to jump in on that. Okay. I I, I don't want you to answer that. I want to go back to what you're saying about theological narratives. Um, The way I hear you saying a theological narrative, it doesn't have to have quote unquote, like, truthfulness to it. And it seems like you're setting like you have theological narrative. That's what the gospels are. They're saying stuff about Jesus. Therefore, Jesus can say one thing in the gospel of John and one thing in the gospel of Mark, uh, like that don't call me good, but in the gospel of John, Jesus is far more likely to say I am God. So th- those seems like they're contradictory. And so they're theological narratives. So you don't have to hold them next to each other as though they're mere images. Uh, the opposite side of that, you said, it's not like it's doing geometry. Okay. What is the, you said, yeah, I want you to give you a better understanding of what the other side is. So on your side, it can be theological narrative. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, historically accurate, but can it be more an understanding of the church and the way that they understood Jesus to be? That's your way. The other side then is what? Well, it,
1: if you come to the gospels and, are, and the lens from which you go to the gospels, are theological conclusions that someone else arrived at, then they're being mediated by uh, someone's linguistic understanding that is, I think is, it's reversing. Like I think we try to talk about our faith and our experience with a God as mediated by Jesus and, and that type of stuff, because we actually need to, like as Christians, I, I and we're both ministers. Like I have, I, I find it problematic to go to somebody and tell them what you really meant when you're telling me about your encounter with God is this. And they're like, well, I didn't even know what that is. But I feel like we do that to biblical texts. Like what, well, what Matthew really meant was the Trinity.
0: Okay, but but let's move past the Trinity. Like I I get like the Bible doesn't have Trinity, but the Bible does have Jesus. Uh, John's, I, I feel like the problematic thing to John for, for this way of reading, as you 're describing is that it does say that Jesus is divine, and I think you do have some of the Paul texts where in you know, the fullness of God well, do you lived- think that, do you think that uh, i don 't know what part of divinity i don 't i'm not a, i don 't affirm i just don 't think the uniqueness of Jesus being more divine than other creation that 's yeah i, I mean I, there 's a whole chapter on it in my book i just i just don 't think that that the
1: uniqueness of Jesus is not that something about his humanity was replaced with something that was divine. And I think that the early church uh, Christological controversies were when people tried to explain it. Like they go, oh, well, Jesus was human, except he had a divine will. So we take the human will out, put it in, or a divine soul, or whatever. And they called councils and said no to that, because they all mm. knew he was fully human. Uh, yeah. And the experience of God as through Christ, was he's divine. And so they try to give an account to it, and I'm just saying that uh, I don't think an answer to that question means some part of his humanity was removed. Yeah, I don't. So I, what okay, but, what about Jesus uh, enables a unique and particular expression of God um, that I think the life of the church points towards?
0: So. I, see, I, I don't see the issue being like Jesus' humanity is reduced somehow. Like, I, I don't see that being the issue as much as I see it. Jesus is fully human, yes, but he has a level of divinity inside of him that others do not have.
1: Well, there's not levels of divinity if we just stick with the creeds. There, I mean, there's only one divine essence,
0: and uh, all three persons share it equally. So I, like, I get that but but I don't share it in the same level that Jesus of nazareth did, in my in my view would right would you say that you have the I'm same I'm very sp-
1: confident you don't share it as much
0: as you. <laughs> look this is kind of like a real wrap up you're you're just pulling the storming jokes out that's good um you guys would like each other um would you say though that the divinity in Jesus is the same as the divinity uh, like in we don't want to say you, but like in Pete Rollins, does Pete Rollins have the same divinity as Jesus? That's a good question. Tweet that.
1: Well, I, I personally think that it was, uh, it was unique. So I don't, I I don't think that, well, what we mean by divinity is one thing, but I think Jesus is divine or unique in a way that other people aren't. And, um, and I would put it this way. So if if the divinity of Jesus is an affirmation we make about God's unique presence in the full human Jesus, then how is it in a relational world that God becomes uniquely present? And I would say that um, that we should not see it in a kind of interventionist uh, category, but an investment category. And God, through the history of biblical history, scriptures, um, God is invested in communities and covenants. And so uh, in Israel's response and Abraham and Sarah's response to God, you create the context where more of God is able to be understood and received in the community. So you, you can't get to Isaiah if there wasn't already a long story of God relating to Israel. Okay. Uh, and so the what of God becomes available to you is based as a human on your context but as a, as a person with an actual history, which all human beings have, we benefit from uh, the history that we inherit. And Jesus is born into a family where his mom, at least if we, we trust Scripture, likes to read prophetic parts of Isaiah over him uh, with confidence. And with uh, one who, upon conception, sings the Magnificat, which is like prophetic Judaism times 10. Yeah. And, and so what the context for Jesus's own, uh, his, the situation he inherits as a human being in the world is not in a vacuum. It's in the covenants uh, in a particular family in a current political and religious environment in the first century. And so when Jesus responds as a human, faithfully to God in that context, it's not as if, uh, his fidelity as in this unique and particular way is divorced from that history. Jesus is the fruit of God's self-investment in the history and people of Israel. And, uh, so it's not an intervention in a vacuum. Um, like the dedicate uses the image that Jesus is the fruit of the vine of David, um, and so you, in the Transfiguration, which we just have Transfiguration Sunday, is a, a way of theologically narrating that in Jesus, in his turn to Jerusalem and the cross, uh, in the synoptic narratives, you see the fulfillment of God's desire for humanity by having Moses yeah. and Elijah there. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm saying, like, his divinity is not an interventionist one. It is the fruit of God's ongoing covenantal faithfulness. And that fidelity of God to the covenant is then received and reciprocated in Jesus' own full fidelity in his life, and that it is the correspondence or fully spirit-filled living as a human that makes his life unique and particular and distinct from all other humans if you're saying like, does that mean trip can't say there wasn't someone else at some point that fully blah, 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 blah. blah I'm like, I don't, I, I don't feel the need to say it's completely impossible. Someone else could have experienced life with God that in that way. But I just,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't, I don't have any reason to think so, but it, it's okay. not as if there's like this I, I need, secret little yeah. God germ that snuck in and now Jesus is completely
0: unlike us. Gotcha. So Quick, quick answer. Yes or no. Jesus is more divine than Pete Rollins. Yes or no. Yes. Jesus is more divine than you. Yes. Jesus is more divine than John Cobb. Yes. Okay. All right.
1: Uh, John Cobb in his Logos Christology uh, says for process people, we talk about primordial nature of God and the consequent nature of God. Primordial is the unchanging part of God. So like God is love, but what love looks like in relationship, to the world changes based on its situation. Yeah. The primordial nature of God is the place from which God gives the offer of response to each moment. And uh, John Cobb in his Logos Christology book said that in the person of Jesus, you have a fusing of his own identity with the identity of the primordial nature of God. And I, that is a rather unique, particular, strong affirmation
0: so uh-huh. that sounds—that sounds kind of like um, uh, Saint Rohr's stuff about the cosmic Christ. That—that that in Jesus of Nazareth, the cosmic Christ is revealed um, in a way that it hasn't been elsewise before. Uh, so I—I I mean, I feel like that—that that sounds almost doable. I could do that. Um, all right, I want to transition now. Let's talk about more about process. Process versus open theism, specifically. Now, open. Let me give you like a brief introduction to open theism. Open theism is the basic belief that scripture describes a God who is in an ongoing relationship with humanity. And because of the way that knowledge works, if God foreknew what was going to happen, then it would be predetermined that it could never change. Uh, whereas in scripture, there's accounts of God changing God's mind. There's accounts of God regretting, um, uh, regretting with Saul. And then God changes his mind. I believe that's Moses praying. Does that sound right? Is it Moses praying trip? Yes. Yes. Um, and so open theism argues make, makes this ontological argument that knowledge of the future is impossible to ascertain because therefore it would ruin the ability for an open relationship to exist. Um, now, your man, John Cobb, made an interesting statement that process theology, which is where you and JC come from, and open theism are very similar, except they come from the liberal side for process and the conservative side from open theism. Would you sign off on JC's take on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think that what the, the uh, kind of origin points for thinking about theology constructively are different if uh, more process theologians probably began with uh, religion science issues or the problem of evil in a more philosophy of religion type of context and open theists probably began by uh, realizing that if they did take the Bible, literally God repents and changes God's mind and all sorts of things that are in there that Calvin couldn't uh, cover up. So yeah, yeah, I think they have different trajectories, but I would say in the Academy, um, like, we're we're all in the same group. So uh, you know how like some churches, right? Like if I was just going to talk at a mainline Protestant church, then uh, I would explain the same thing differently than if I was going to, you know, you were like, I want to lose my job and have trip come. Uh, then Which I, don't, I, I, don't I could that. communicate the exact same thing uh, with by exegeting scripture and stuff without needing to make reference to uh, science or religion pluralism or whatever so like it's um they started in different places and then they all became friends when they realized they had certain primary commitments Uh, what are the what are the primary commitments that are similar um well one is uh that god is relational which means that the uh the reality of god is impacted by god's relationship to the world so Mm -hmm. uh immutability uh
0: that type of thing immutability which means God doesn't change impassibility, yeah. which how would you describe like, that? Like God doesn't have feelings about existence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like when it says
1: God grieves or is God has joy, it means like God is moved by us. Yeah. Um, uh, it, we, they share that the, the uh, commitment that the future is open so that um, uh, what uh, is to be is not closed. so, mm. so, you could, and that impacts, like, divine foreknowledge, which tends to be one of the places uh,
0: people get really hung up on. And but, by divine foreknowledge, you mean, like, God. Omniscience. Yeah, like, prophetic things about this is what's going to happen in the future. God knows what's going to take place. And so uh, a prophecy is tapping into God's omniscience, and God just breaking off a little piece of that.
1: Yeah, it, so, you know, C.S. Lewis gives this image of omniscience where uh, he says, like, all of history is kind of like a book. And we're, I mean, he doesn't use the cursor narrative, but like we're on the cursor of our experience going through the book. And for yeah. us, we're like, what's going to happen? How's it going to go? And God's, ex- God's experience and knowledge of the book is external to history. And open theists and process types, uh, even a lot of social Trinitarians like Moltmann and such, would say that that's not true. That part of God's relationship to the world is yeah. that history and the process and relationships are not something God, God knows externally, but
0: participates in and knows internally. So, I would say so that like God is bound to the human experience, like God steps into it with us. And so God isn't distant and removed from it, right? And so, but, but it wouldn't but, be limited to human. It would be all of all creation. Fair enough. Yeah, good, good call. Uh, but then how would you respond, especially to the conservatives who would say, but what does that do for like the prophecy that we see in scripture of people like Joseph giving the heads up, hey, there's a famine that's coming or, um, you know, other texts like in Acts where they say, um, where someone predicts other things that are going to take place.
1: So I would say a couple things. One is uh, when it goes to the knowledge of God, God knows the past completely because uh, it's completed. And so and God doesn't just know it externally, but if God fully participates in history and the world, then God even knows the past completely internally. God knows the present fully by participating in it as it comes into being. And God knows the future as what the future is, namely possibilities. But when it goes to how God knows the future, um, it's not like there's knowledge to be known that God doesn't know because the future is precisely known as future but if you take like the image of a flashlight and shine it in the dark what is immediately in front of you and what you see uh, there's a much more clarity than you know a mile down the road mm-hmm. and further down you know further out and so there like that God has awareness of what's going to happen or something like that um I think a lot of people don't realize uh, the security or confidence one has in God mm-hmm. as we move into the future. I don't think is that God secretly knows everything. It's that God is going to be with us and is the one holding the flashlight. Yeah. And so it's our confidence in the process of history and stuff is who is with us. And that to me seems like a much more Christian affirmation. It's the one who was with us and faithful all the way to the cross That we have trust in not the one who was like i'm gonna send my kid down there and then don't worry i'll come
0: back later just relax and but but some people hear that and they go i like the relational nature of god but god doesn't seem as powerful because it seems that god is willing to be put under the confines of time like like all creation is. And I think the, the appeal of say like a Calvinist worldview that says, you know, God's preordained everything. And when it talks about predestined, um, it's not making the move to say that I think scriptures making to say that, you know, God's plan from the beginning was Jews and Gentiles to come together. And so predestination is about like what God plans to do, but it's God has micromanaged every detail. And there's a sense of confidence like God, okay, you've got all this under control because you've, you've done that. But what it detracts is the relationality of God—that God isn't in this with us—and said God is just the one who's who's pulling the strings on everything. And so it seems like love and power are the two ob- like you're choosing which one. Like if I'm going to take a process or an open, it's like I'm choosing a God of love, and if I'm choosing a God with this this strong determinist world uh, that, that's already been preordained and predetermined, you're choosing power.
1: Well, I think I think it's fair to say that for any open and relational theologian, the power of God is the power of love. And yeah. um but but then again, like I you know, I would just like to like read Philippians two and see if yep. somehow when reading it there's some sneaky move where uh you, you know, oh
0: well it's omnipotence on the back end. Um the 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 but the I other like when of, you quote scripture it makes me it makes my heart warm. It's like well maybe he's got a chance. Look
1: but, but like now, if you just took those questions and started reading the Hebrew scriptures, I, I don't see at what point, unless you have external commitments, you are extremely confident that God's knowledge and power is full and complete in the ways a lot of people think it needs to be in order to feel secure. Yeah. And, um, the, and so, you know, like, but that's like even Walter Brueggemann will say that and, uh, and you know. Like, I don't, I don't think that's a, you have to be open and relational. I think it's just, you have to read the Bible, um, Mm -hmm. and, and not come to it with a set of conclusions that forces you to, uh, interpret it rather, um, ideologically like,
0: you know, you know, Walter's in the podcast next week, talking with Walter on next Thursday. Uh, and so maybe we'll bring it up to him, but. You're right. That was a name drop I just did right there. But you're right to say that there are external resources that are influencing how we're reading. And I think that's part of what open, theo- open theism has done is said, hey, these pagan expectations for their deities are influencing you more than scripture is. And I, I think that is one of the healthy critiques that open theism gives us. Does process, I guess, draw on that in the same way? That impassibility, immutability, those things are... Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean,
1: I... M- you know 90% of what they'll say about the divine attributes are
0: very similar. So okay. Uh, Speaking of similar, let me talk to you about something that me and old JC had in similar in common. I have been working very diligently trying to remove gender pronouns from my vernacular when it comes to the divine. Sorry. So I'm trying to get away from in especially my public discourse, using God as a he, because I know that is offensive to some. Um, I don't have the issue with saying the Lord's Prayer. It's not a personal issue for me, but to be considered of others, especially those who have struggled with that, I try not to do it. But what happens when I'm at Theology Beer Camp, where I'm surrounded by all you liberals, is one of the few times that I actually do that. And I checked the old Twitter machine afterwards, and there were a lot of people from Theology Beer Camp who weren't happy with me. Now, ironically, they went after old poor Luke when J.C., John Cobb himself, the John Piper of liberals, um, was supporting that. Like, he was saying, yes, you should use the divine masculine pronoun because it speaks to the intimacy which we lose when we get rid of it. And so... Would you like to tell all your friends to send me apologies and say, Luke, I'm sorry for saying that about you on Twitter. Um, we'll, since JC's on my side. Well,
1: okay. Well, <laughs> maybe I'll explain what, what JC was saying. Um, cause here's what he was responding to. Um, and now he was one of the first people to redo his books to be yeah. gender inclusive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Think so, um and he, and if you if you went through famous living feminist theologians, many of them he was uh supportive was their dissertation advisor and so when he 's getting to where he 's going, this is not because uh he 's uncomfortable using uh gender inclusive language or feminine pronouns for God in a church because no woman 's allowed to speak at bible study like that 's not like the context for it is like you're so progressive that uh now you're going, what do we do with language? That's Now, from that place, though, I think if I was an evangelical hearing him, his concern isn't, that's right, you should just call God he. No, 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 it comes out of the larger argument about Abba, and so he uses Abba more than, you know, like he or something, and the reason is that when our language uh, shapes our, our language that we use religiously shapes our understanding of spirituality and faith, and that when we dis- what we use to describe um, has consequences. And yeah. so one of the consequences that was not anticipated that he's pointing out is that when we start getting obsessed with the real lived experience of females who were oppressed historically by the church um, and the way patriarchy was supported by the church in this generic uh, always he application to God – we start to correct it. And he's saying that in the correction, what we did was depersonalize God, mm-hmm. not, uh, not account for patriarchy. And so you end up with generations of mainline Protestants whose experience of God, the way their piety is shaped, isn't personal. And what John Cobb is saying is the structure of Christian existence is to live with, before, and engaging a personal, loving, parental God. So and what if I hear you say? Want to be a Christian? You don't. Uh, you aren't uncomfortable about using personal language for God. And since we haven't figured out how to do it yet, uh, let's not depersonalize God so much that we teach people a religion that doesn't correspond to the religious shape of piety Jesus had.
0: That's a long way to say yes, Luke. You're right. Um, well, no, I I just mean like you know
1: like I I don't I yeah, okay. I use let me, I let use me- female imagery all the time, and I'm. I use very personal imagery and rotate them. I don't that,
0: That's the key though. You you can't Okay, if you're going to sing a song about the divine feminine and be excited about it, which I'm not saying you shouldn't be, but you can't then criticize someone on the other side because they use it. Like you can't be upset because someone uses a masculine pronoun every once in a while if they want to say the Lord's Prayer. Not like you accidentally use a masculine pronoun because you're trying to work out a habit you've been doing for 30 plus years, but because you you legitimately believe the Lord's Prayer still has a place in the liturgy. I think you should be able to use both of them, and I think that you find the feminine pronoun, like the feminine characteristics of God, are in Scripture. And so, as a, like a, like as a person of the text who has a high view of Scripture, I think that calls me to in, incorporate that. And I think also my consideration of the experience of others who have experienced patriarchy that have been that has been baptized into the name of Jesus, we need to like be careful about how we continue to, to oppress. But I, I feel like. I think Cobb's take is it needs to be personal. And I think the pronouns masculine and feminine can be more personal than just an abstract God self. If it's communicating what he, what he's pointing
1: out was essential for the, the piety Jesus taught his disciples. Like when you pray our father or whatever um, it is a personal parental image for God. Um, And so if it's not in also including the weight of patriarchy, people aren't going to flinch when you say our mother as well. Like I, so you you can spot patriarchy when you're only comfortable with one as if that language of gendered language corresponds to God as God is in God's self. And, um, and so, the, you know, I've-
0: but, I, Okay, but here's the, like you don't have like people who have uh, a certain view of text. There are divine feminine characteristics in text, but there's never a passage that says, our heavenly mother we don't we don't have that like we have stuff about like jesus like like a hen i want to gather you and how can i forget you like a mother ha- ha, uh, who has nursed a child at her breast i can't forget like there are characteristics but for some like it's just very odd because they don't have any book chapter and verse that goes with it well i mean
1: if you use the same logic there's a whole lot of horrible things uh that continue to exist throughout all of scripture that um you, you know. Like it, slavery is one of them. Yeah. Um, the, the domestic codes for the New Testament are not ones we're planning on enforcing in our congregations yeah. or homes. Mm-hmm. And so the the once you if you think Scripture is in any part historical, you shouldn't be surprised that thousands of years ago, in a culture, namely the West, that is inherently hierarchical and patriarchal, that mm-hmm. the way in which uh, authoritative texts were edited, communicated, and whose voices make it on there happen to be men in power who want the language of the divine that gets the position of authority to correspond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the, so, yeah, and, and the other thing I would say is there is no language in God that is direct. The, the like, even when Jesus says, oh, pray this way, it's not like he's telling you that God the ultimate mystery is actually best understood as an expression of one half of a two-gendered biological creature on the planet. Um, and it, like, the notion of father only makes sense because life evolved on this planet to have two genders necessary for reproduction. And uh, so, the notion of father and son is a, a always going to be some type of analogy. It, it, it's not a direct correlation to how God is in God's self. And so the, I think you can as a Christian and wanting to be conservative or something say like the language we use for God should be relationally determined by the father son relation that Jesus described, but to like elevate it to getting exclusivity in doxology worship and stuff uh, hasn't. Um, resulted in the elevation of women and uh, the oppressed in the life of the church that Jesus did in his own community. And so, as we've come to understand how language functions to inscribe on us positions, expectations, and desires on both sides, even men, then I think attending to it's important yeah. Now, and I think it is very different what Cobb's saying in a congregation who is paying the health insurance of a family because the mom's ordained and preaches. It is just different. Like, that's fair. That's the, fair. And, and so, you know, I, his pushback is to mainline Protestants who's ex, who are so progressive, the way they act out their spirituality can't be differentiated from their Buddhist neighbor. I mean, I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Like, yeah. like that's when fair. you lose the personal language, then you aren't. You're thinking of God in some objectively distant type of sense, rather than uh, God as near, close, present, invested in the particularities of your life.
0: Um, but uh, I agree. I, I, that's fair. And I mean, y'all don't have to send me emails to say you're sorry if you don't want to. But I feel like we're on the same page now. Okay, I've got to go in uh, one minute. Uh All right. Resurrection did it happen yes or no oh what well, yes, and it's probably <laughs> still happening isn't it
1: there you, you go. tell me
0: there you go yes, it happened continues to happen and will happen again
1: well and the resurrection is not the resurrection just of Jesus the New Testament has the resurrection as the first fruits of yep. a promise, and so um what and if people listen to that part in in Cobb, I think he was saying like Well, of course it happened because the whole structure of Christian community and things is that we are a community that is attempting to anticipate a practice of reconciled community as we uh, look forward to greater depths of that uh, coming into being. And it comes not because we are the primary uh, ones who make it possible, but because we are the ones that participate with the God who promises to bring it into being Mm -hmm. uh, yeah so
0: do you think um if you are near texas for one of your summer theology beer camp events that you'll swing down to austin and maybe we could officially just baptize you then
1: well um i've i've already been baptized and uh you know yeah, so but mm, I, I don't know as someone who values augustine uh, during the lapse controversy in the early church, when people thought they needed to get rebaptized because their minister that baptized them turned in holy text and and you know recanted their faith, he said baptism is, uh, efficacy is connected to the work and power of God in Christ and not the person that does it so rebaptism is uh, in one sense a symbolic rejection of the power of Christ to give grace to us apart from the one who baptizes and the one who receives. So as just a well, conservative Christian, I want to tell you that um, I would not want to uh, uh, taunt yeah. the finality of God's gift of love in Christ by uh, doing well, so.
0: well, as someone who was born in the month of August, uh, I would like to say that uh, I'm still praying for you. Uh, Tripper it was fun. at your event. It was fun seeing you here. It's good. Good, good podcast. And, uh, uh, it, it really was a fun event. I enjoyed getting to know some of those people out there, and uh, I, I'm, I'm joking. There was not a lot of negative hate I got on the old Twitter. Uh, it, it was a r- great group. I'm glad I got to meet a lot of those people, and it's uh, it's hard for me to say this, but Trip, you're, you're doing some good work for those people, and uh, I, I was glad to know some of those people and call them friends now. So well done, man. Awesome. Well, I like you, and uh, you know, I, and next time I
1: see you, you're going to be like, well, you know, I'm an open theist. But then, like, maybe two years from now,
0: um, uh, you, you'll just uh, go full process. And, no, I'm not going to – I've been – I've read open theism, for like, 15 years ago, and I, this is not new. Like, I'm just regurgitating stuff that I learned when I was 20. Um, well, everyone has their growing edges.
1: Sometimes truth takes longer to find root. You know, I heard this story it's weird. It's weird that There's you even said the word truth. Cast. I didn't know you knew what it was. There's seed cast on the ground. And sometimes it falls <laughs> on shallow soil, mm-hmm. and and it's like oh, I want to I want to grow here, but it's shallow. So then, if you get in the right
0: place, you know it's, it can grow deeper, bigger roots, and uh, that's good. That's that's very nice trip. It's been fun. Thanks for quoting the Bible verse that your son told you he learned in preschool. So well done. Yeah.
1: You know. Everyone, I got to quote it every once in a while. It helps my street cred. Yeah, it does. All right. See you, dude. All right. Peace.
0: Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.